We are at number 343. It's a very short one. When Smith left the master, forsaking his wife who chose to remain with her guru, the master commented, it takes incarnations of good karma to get such a good wife. Master didn't really say anything more. He just left it sit like that. You know, it's... uh, uh, let me just see. Human uh, life is very complicated. <laughs> it's about the only thing you can say. Okay, number 344. Often the master compared this world to a movie and the good and bad people in it to the heroes and villains on the screen. There has to be a villain, he reminded us, so we all learn to love the hero. If you imitate the villain's behavior, however, you will receive his punishment. It's all a dream, but ask yourself, why live a bad dream by creating bad karma? With good karma, you get to enjoy the, the dream. Good karma also makes you want in time to wake up from the dream. Bad karma, on the other hand, darkens the mind and keeps it bound to the dreaming process. From a mountaintop, one sees clearly the whole countryside and also the open sky above. From the heights, it is natural to want to soar even higher, far above the earth. In the fog-bound valley below, however, the most that one aspires to may be only to climb a little bit higher. You know, this back up in the paragraph before, Why live a bad dream by creating bad karma? With good karma, you get to enjoy the dream. Good karma also makes you want in time to wake up from the dream. It's sort of interesting. It's, it's, I mean, even just, it's like it's the nature of good karma that, that what constitutes good karma is something that inspires you toward self-realization. We tend to think of good karma as just the part where good karma allows you to enjoy the dream. But that's not the end in itself, because when you're in a refined state of awareness, you begin to be able to see even higher levels of refinement. I mean, that was, to a very large extent, the, uh, the impact of Swami Kriyananda's company, which is, you know, my own natural uh, point of gravity is, relatively speaking, light. You know, I'm cheerful, I'm enthusiastic as as a rule, and I'm awake and interested. But Swamiji would just take whatever was going on, and he would he would just by his presence it would it would elevate to a higher level. And then when you would begin to experience that, it would tell you not that what you were experiencing was terrible, but that there was just another place to go. So the real nature of good karma is exposes you to something even better. And that's what uh, Swami Master writes there later when he says, if you climb up to the heights, you can see the sky. Otherwise, you don't even know that it's there and you're not, um, you're not inspired to go forward because if you're in the fog-bound valley, it's, it's just the sky isn't, isn't relevant to it. When we were talking just before the class started, it is the full moon today or perhaps tomorrow. And, you know, the moon comes around on a regular basis. And yesterday I just looked up into the early evening sky and it was so 
perfect. It was so perfectly round and perfectly beautiful that your whole, your whole inner self is automatically, um, it makes you long for beauty. And they, they say that when you go to the astral world, if you have that aspiration for beauty, you get to fulfill it much more than you do in this world. You can fulfill it with your thought and you can experience with all your senses. And I know Swami was talking about in the astral world, you can feel and taste color, which, which is sort of like it's, a, it's something one tries to do. I, I work a lot with fabric when I'm working at this time of year on the school play, and I go to this fabric warehouse. It's, not a, it's more of a warehouse store, and everything is priced accordingly. It's a wonderful place to shop for what I'm doing. And literally, I just get drunk. You go into certain aisles, and there's just all these vibrant colors, and but it's that um, that memory of how, how one, from the astral world, how you could take in color on a wholly different level than you can take it in in the material plane. Here I can hold it and I can look at it, but I can't, I can't become it. Um, and, and just, I suppose, the astral memory, the affection that I have for fabric and color, um, the desire when you love something to be closer to it, um, all of that sort of moves you to look for a, a, a plane of reality where that's happening a little bit more. And so that's what good karma is. You're exposed to higher potentials than you already know, and you're... Um, uh, a, a, it, there's, there's some kind of... I was trying to think how to say it. There's a grace. There's a grace that causes you to want more. And this is sort of... Um, Something that we have to understand, this balance between... We, we might have a desire or a will to avoid suffering or a will to find happiness, but there's something more subtle that, that happens to us, and the grace of God is the only thing that you can really call it. Call it. The good karma is the grace of God to make you want to wake up. And so that's what it is. It's, it's, it is true, and I think it's interesting that he says it, Good karma allows you to enjoy the dream a little more. And it's funny, I've been thinking a lot about this, partly because of the stage of life I'm in, but it just comes that uh, no matter how much you enjoy it, sooner or later, just very challenging things happen to everyone. And if they don't happen to you personally, they happen to people you love. And so there's no karma that's good enough to allow you to really enjoy this world except the karma that allows you to transcend it. But I, many times I hear Swami say, and even um, just in, in the reading just before, it takes very good karma to have a, a, a wife who's devoted to the spiritual path. I mean, so often in people's lives, I think I was speaking of it, I think it was in this class not too long ago, about the man who was at Ananda who married, and Swami's only comment was she won't help him with her, his sadhana. She won't help him with his sadhana. And I mean, in every other way, she was a nice person. But all Swami, that's all Swami said. She won't help him with his sadhana. And if you align yourself with someone who won't help you with your sadhana, that's not good karma. I mean, we think of it as, you know, you should like each other, you should want to do the same things, all these different things. But Swami, you know, stepping way back from it, someone will help you with your sadhana or not. 
and, and that's good karma. Anyway, very interesting comments. This next one has some really interesting points in it too. This is number three, four, five. The master was far from indifferent to the world's sufferings. I mean, just that first sentence. I, this, is the, this is the issue that I'm always wrestling with. Is to, I, and I think I'm always wrestling with it because trying to objectify, I'm trying to objectify, objectively understand, and I think of master, but I think more of Swami, of what, what his real perspective was on the world is because I'm trying to understand what my perspective should be on the world. Because I get tumbled, he chooses. I, when I was younger, I was enamored of the idea of being aloof from it all. But I've gradually understood that that's not as spiritual an attitude as I thought it was. So the master was far from indifferent to the world's sufferings. You would think with his cosmic perspective he would be, but he wasn't. Quite the opposite. He had been reborn to help alleviate it. So, I mean, you have to go right there. It's the Master's compassion. Greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom to willingly incarnate for the sake of what you can do to help others. I know when Swamiji, he often, in the middle of his life, he often commented that once he he was done, he was going to be done. But then he began to just say, I mean, one of his phrases was, I know myself. Meaning, and then he would say, if for your sakes, you know, I'll come back. I'll come back to help you. And that this is greater can no love be than this, to just give up your own freedom and not consider it a loss. You know, Jesus didn't feel really bummed out because he had to be crucified. It's like he knew that's what was going to be asked of him, and he embraced it without hesitation because he, he really wanted to help people. And, and all of us do too. It's just a question, it's a twofold question. How much power we have to help and how much we're, we're able to sacrifice our own ease and pleasure to help other people. And they, they kind of go together a little bit, except by the time you can really give up everything for the sake of others, it doesn't feel like a loss. So it, it's all very subtle. One, one day, Master remarked how terrible it is that whole nations keep the rest of mankind disrupted in suffering. Master lived through both World War I and World War II, and both of them were initiated by the German ambition to conquer. And, and your Master just says how terrible it is. You have, you have a, a whole nation there that's just out to get everyone, or out to get for themselves, and you have a whole bunch of people incarnating there who have, I mean, enough people incarnating there who have the karma to have power to make that happen, even though the majority of people may be very nice people. Swami talked about when he grew up in Europe, they traveled in Germany and he knew many German people and they were like people everywhere. Many of them were wonderful. And then all of a sudden this, you know, maniac, becomes empowered and then in in Germany, the beginning of World War II, and then he gets enough other maniacs to act with him, and pretty soon it doesn't matter what all those people are doing, it's just like this force is just moving through it. There's a story that I 
I put into the book about Swami that's just about to be published. And we were, uh, a group of us was, was, was on vacation with Swamiji in Goa, India, at this hotel that he often went to. And we were having dinner in the dining room, and there was a group of five people, I think, two couples and a, a man, an extra man. And Swamiji heard them, he said, speaking a language he didn't know. And he didn't know what language it was, so he went over and sat with them, and it turns out they were from I- Iraq. Iraq, Iran, whichever, whichever Saddam Hussein was, I can't remember, which was it, Iraq? So they were from Iraq, and they were speaking Persian. And he just talked with them some and then came back to our table. And the next morning, he, he, he asked about a man he'd known in college who was from Iraq and had gone back to that country. And he asked if he'd become famous. And in fact, he had. Swamiji said he had the karma. He, he, had the, he seemed like someone who had become famous. That's how Swami put it. And then Swami asked if he was a good man. He asked the Persians whether his friend was a good man. And they said, the government says he's a bad man, so the people all know him to be a good man. That was just like that. You know, which indicated their point of view about many things. And the next morning, when Swami came down to breakfast, he was carrying a small package with him. And when he saw them at their table, he went over to their table and gave them the package, and he chatted with them a little. And and then he came back and told us what happened. He said, he said to them, when good people have a bad government, there's very little that ordinary citizens can do. But he said, at least, you know, um, between the two of us, I can be your friend. And then he gave him some small present that he bought for them. And his eyes filled with tears when he was telling us that story. It's, it's just, it's terrible when one country begins to tyrannize the world. And there's a, 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 a force of destiny that gets going there that seems unstoppable in certain ways. I mean, you can analyze and say so-and-so could have done this or could have done that, but there's a cosmic force that makes it happen. And people who are in tune with that kind of bad energy incarnate there at that time in order to be able to act it out. Uh, interestingly, Master said, speaking of Germany as we are, he said that Hitler wasn't personally responsible. He was the instrument of the karma of both the Jewish people and the German people, that their karma was going to express in a certain way, and he was the instrument. He didn't create it. And, and he made that statement, I think it's in this book, that by contrast, Joseph Stalin was personally responsible for what happened in his country. It just, the, the karma of the individuals, one was just in a, place and time, and the other was the act of giving force. It's very, uh, you want to have good karma so you can enjoy the dream. I mean, think what such people will suffer. It just, and that's also, when you see people suffering, you know that they're balancing something. One should be glad that they're balancing something and not just continuing to go forward in the wrong direction. When we were uh, in, the, in the lawsuit that was filed by the woman who claimed that Ananda was a, an abusive cult. And because of a whole lot of things, she actually won that lawsuit, primarily because we thought the charges were so preposterous we could never imagine anybody would take them seriously. But we vastly, vastly underestimated the power of evil. 
But when we were sitting in the courtroom when the, when the verdict came in and the, the um, plaintiff was there and the verdict was against us, it was very interesting to me that my very first thought, of which I was quite pleased, was, oh, that poor woman. Because not only did she file this lawsuit, which was a, just a fabric of lies and, and perjured herself to perpetuate it, but now she's won, which will make her think that she did a good thing. And it will take her even longer before the whole boomerang comes all the way around and balances out for her. And it, it was just, it was an interesting perspective. As I said, I was very pleased that that was my first thought. I wasn't angry at her. I felt really sorry for her. I looked over at her and I thought, oh my God, this is just going to get worse for you. you. You get bad karma. You really don't get to enjoy the dream. Where there's dharma, there's victory, and there's just no way around it. Even if she got money, even if she got what she wanted, you know, in this minute, the next minute's going to be different. So anyway, one day he remarked how terrible that the rest of mankind is disrupted. Clifford, more out of indifference, I suspected, to the world's suffering than because of any glowing faith in God, it was he who had confessed that he didn't practice Kriya, said, but sir, isn't all that just part of the play of God? Now, that was a very long sentence, and it's worth taking apart. One of, the, one of Swami's fellow monks, you know, just, Master said, it's terrible that one nation causes so much suffering. I mean, that's, Master really cared about that. He could feel that suffering. He was in everyone's consciousness. And Clifford says, oh, well, it's just a play of God, sir. Why are you upset about it? You know, the disciples correcting the guru, you start there. But what Swami says here, it was more out of indifference to the suffering of others. That's what, that's what he was saying. Clifford was saying, oh, it's all a play of God, but it wasn't really that Clifford perceived it as a play of God. It was that he wasn't aware enough to really be conscious of other people's suffering, and he wasn't therefore motivated enough to be concerned about it. And that's, it's just a very important point, because people think, that to be to be spiritual is well you you why are you so empathetic to those people's sufferings why are you so involved with all these people who are suffering it's all a play of god but but that's being actually below that state of freedom rather than actually in it and and it's a very important thing to watch because suppressing your feelings or closing down your awareness is not the same as transcending. And so sometimes we say that it doesn't matter to us, but it matters. I've often been, I've often counseled people, and they'll often in the course of counseling people, people will say something, well, you know, I, I, I'm really not attached to it. Or I really don't care what they say. It's really, they can say whatever they want. And oftentimes I'll just stop them for a minute. I say, really? Really? Is that really how you feel? And then often it's like we're all trying to stay ahead of the tenderness of our own nature. We, we, we don't know how to deal with it, so we're trying to push through it. And it's understandable why we don't want to deal with it, but it's not the same as freedom. And that's just what we have to get into our mind. We have to become extremely aware of what we really feel and why we feel it then we can decide whether or not to allow it to have free reign 
or whether to redirect or to discipline ourselves in another way. Because the goal is not um, to be overwhelmed with the suffering of other people or to be constantly involved in an external reality. So, but first we have to be authentically aware of what I'm really experiencing before we can make a decision about what we're going to do about it. It's important for people to understand because sometimes they just think, I don't want to be, I don't want to be involved in all that. Well, maybe you don't, but you can't get out of it by ignoring or suppressing or pretending. So when Clifford says, but sir, isn't all that just part of the play of God? The master replied, of course it is. In God's movie, there have, as I, there have, as I've said, to be villains and heroes. Earth life is a movie. And then Master says, At present, however, we are speaking from the human point of view, not the divine. Now that sentence was actually very helpful to me, and it was also takes us back to number 99, where Master talks about the problem he has is that he, the, the discussion in number 99 is when he's telling the monks that they need to keep him informed of things that are going on in the monastery that he might not be aware of. And then Swami says, but how can you not be aware of them? You're omnipresent. <laughs> and Master says something to effect like, well, you know, it's a little tricky <laughs> because sometimes I'm aware of everything and sometimes I'm not if I don't put my mind to it. I mean, you, you don't end up really knowing what Master really thinks clearly, because it's a state of mind you don't understand, but he says, you're operating on both realities at the same time. And this, again, as I've said, Master's divine consciousness includes human consciousness. And because we're primarily in human consciousness, we can affirm divine consciousness, but Master could actually turn his attention there. And actually, and but you see, then he could feel all realities, because as he says about the dream, it's a dream but it's real on the level of a dream. When you have a dream that, in your sleep, that is very real, that causes you to have an experience, you have that experience. And it's not until you awaken from the dream that you realize that it was only a dream. And I'm sure all of us have had that. I remember, in, in, you know, sometimes, there have been periods of time when I've had very vivid dreams, and some of them not always pleasant. But I remember on more than one occasion, being in a dream where I just did something really stupid. Just did something really stupid and all the negative consequences were just rolling out in the dream. And then I would wake up and I would realize, oh, oh, it didn't really happen. It was just such a relief to realize that I, I wasn't going to have to live through the mess I had created in the dream. But in this dream, in this life, waking life, oftentimes I have to live through the mess I created. But, presumably, when you awaken in God, it w- the, the wake- awakening is just the same dramatic. Oh, oh yeah, it, that all that happened, all that took place, but I don't really have to deal with it because it was just an illusion. However, from the human perspective, it's not. And so, Master's able to actually feel what it feels like to be us. So he, he has compassion because it's like, It's like Swami was saying, if a little child comes to you and says, my dolly broke her leg, would you fix it? And, you know, he's really upset. You don't say, oh, that's just a doll, don't be stupid. 
you say, oh, here, give it to me, you know, we'll bandage its arm up and we'll put it in a little sling and now you take care of it. Because the child is learning important lessons by going through all that. And it's a, it's a bad parent who doesn't understand what it looks like from the child's perspective. And so the master really knows what it looks like from our perspective and he helps us go through it as if it were real because in going through it we learn important lessons. If he simply dismisses it, how will we ever grow? Now you had a question, Vipa? basically um, trying to uh, grasp it a little uh, clearer uh, we say that to be self-realized uh, you are in a state of satchitananda which means that you are in a state of ever new ever true joy okay uh, okay so shall I repeat that it's alright it's yeah. fine so um and at the same time, like the uh, uh, the example you gave of the uh, parent and child, that right. if if you don't uh, sympathize, I mean, sympathize is not the right word, but if you don't relate to the, the pain reality, you have to relate to people on, according to the reality that they are living. That that they are living. Right. So, this means, is it true that at the same time you feel the pain, but you are still in joy? I mean, what is that you are really feeling? Well, it's, it's like when Swamiji asked Master, if you incarnate as William the Conqueror and you have to be a soldier and you're living a life that is not exactly meditating by the Ganges, you know, what, where is your consciousness? And Master said, inwardly you are always free. But he still had to go to battle and he still had to... Um, he had, so had to discipline those who were treasonous. He had to, in William the Conqueror, he had to imprison his own son. He, he, his, his wife conspired with his son against him. I mean, a lot of really bad things happened. And from the human perspective, he had to live through all of those things. But you can live on many levels simultaneously, is the only thing I can say. And, and we, we do. I mean, we often go through very tough things, but a piece of us... It's not that we're not consumed with the suffering, but we don't commit suicide because we know that, there, that we're going somewhere. There's a reality that we're following. To some extent, that's what the Master's experience. I mean, Swamiji had many variations in his consciousness. He didn't just sit there with a blissful smile on his face. He had many, many issues that he had to confront and solve, and, and he behaved in a very natural way in relation to all of them. At the same time, whenever you were with him, you felt uplifted. Even if it was a very difficult conversation about a very hard subject, you never felt pulled down. You always felt behind it all, there was this vibration of the awareness that whatever is happening, God is also here. And so joy is, joy is not just ha-ha. See, we think even bliss, we think of it as pleasure and ease. And it isn't. It comes from a, a bliss comes from a much deeper level of a sense of the rightness of things and a faith in what's happening and a confidence that we are not alone. I mean, th that's what the feelings are. We 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 can't even we don't have words for it. 
because we don't experience that much of the time, almost always our positive feelings are conditional, conditioned by the circumstances around us. And very rarely do we have an, an unconditioned state of bliss. I mean, it comes occasionally, but very rarely. But a master has an unconditioned state of bliss which exists behind all the, the trouble and the difficulty that he has to go through. And, but he can't focus on it because he has to participate. Otherwise, why would he incarnate? And once he participates, he also sees it from the human point of view. And no, it does not reconcile easily. I don't know how to reconcile it. Ramakrishna's example was one of the most dramatic because he was so dramatic. When his nephew died, who had been his constant companion for many years, and took care of him and, and in, in every way, in many ways, enabled his life, Ramakrishna alternated between this great sorrow that his nephew was gone and this great sorrow that he wouldn't have his company and this concern, all these different concerns, and he would weep and he was so sad in, his, in every way. And then an instant later, he would literally be in ecstasy talking about the great good karma his nephew got and how he was lifted to a very high state of consciousness as soon as he died. And then he would go back and see it from the human point of view. And you, you can't make sense out of it from our perspective because we don't, we don't know what it is to, to, to be able to be in both worlds simultaneously. So it, it's, better, it's better not to try to bring it to too clear a focus with the intellect because the intellect just can't grasp it. It's beyond concept. And I, I hear people, you know, defining this and defining this and therefore this must be true. I don't know. I don't know if therefore actually applies in that sense because we're, we're, we're dealing with linear logic. We, and, we're and there we're dealing with a circular reality. You're standing at the center of the, of the circle and you're seeing the whole circle simultaneously. It's just completely different than being isolated on the rim and sort of vaguely wondering what it would be like to be in the center. Does that make sense? Yes, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, and the uh, point about being in the center versus being at the rim made a lot of sense. Yeah. Because, yeah, that that sort of gives us the uh, perspective. And one more thing which came to my mind as, I, as, as you were talking about it was uh, analogy of playing a role uh, you know, as if in a movie, mm -hmm. and when uh, really good actors play that role, and if 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 there is a scene to be sad, they are really sad at that point. Yeah. But deep down, they also know that this is not really the you know end of the world, or this is not really the reality. But it is reality at the same time. So probably, and and this is my guess or just a thought that came to me that masters do have those sort of sense that yes I am sad uh, you know at this point for what is happening around me but I know deep down that yes this is a but I don't think they intellectualize about it you see we think they they think about it I um, when we uh, we first started our school and we didn't have many children past the fifth or sixth grade and when we, we would still put on these big theater productions, we used to have a lot more adults on the stage. And I, I was in a number of those plays at different times. Children, we'd, it was a mixed cast of children and adults. And uh, for a few years, we had this uh, man named Matthew on our staff. 
and he was a, a very, very talented actor. He'd, he'd gone into it professionally and trained professionally and eventually taught in our school for a number of years and directed our plays beautifully. He, he was a one, is a wonderful man and his contribution was wonderful. We actually did The Life of Jesus. We were really graphic. It was, we'll never do anything like that again, but it was really dramatic and he ended, by the time we really got into the story, Matthew himself played the part of Jesus, which even though it was a, quote, school play, he was marvelous, really. Swami actually was here, said afterwards, that's a very hard role to play, and he played it beautifully. So I was, it, I played Mary for one of the sections. I was Mary. And even though in the Bible they don't really talk about what happens to Joseph, we decided that Joseph would die in our story. So Joseph dies in our story, and it, Gary McSweeney was playing Joseph, so he's laid out on the slab there. I don't know. If, it all seemed like a good idea at the time. I don't really. But my part was that I'm supposed to be Mary and my husband has died. Joseph has died. And Jesus is my son. By now it's three adults in this part. And I refuse to leave him. As you know, as a woman would. It's my husband has died. He's been wonderful. I, I don't want to leave him until uh, my son, Jesus, comes and pulls me away. And because Matthew was such a good actor, and I just knew I could rely on him completely, I put out of my mind 100% what was, what was supposed to happen. I didn't think, well, I'll stand here for the count of five, and then he'll come up behind me. I put all of that out of my mind. I put myself in the reality of what if, you know, my husband has died, and, and this is the end. And I just was there, completely there, I mean, I remember this so vividly because it was probably, I, I mean, I'm not on the stage very much, but it, it, was a, it was a recollection of what that really is. I was just there, and Matthew's a, a big man, and he had to remove me. And I can still remember the way he held me and pulled on me. And it, but it taught me a lot about how a master lives in this world because there was no part of me that knew I was acting. I just was there, and then what had to happen, happened next. But of course, I wasn't any of those things, but I also wasn't not those things. It, it wasn't, here I am acting, and, and this is going to happen, and I'm not really this. See, that's how we intellectualize it. But I, I never saw in Swamiji, I mean, people would, just like Clifford, people would lecture him about the teachings. I mean, I would just, I would be so astonished People would write him letters or say things in person, you know. Now, you really mustn't be attached to the outcome. I would think, who taught you that in the first place? What are you doing? You know? And it, yeah, they're like crazy. But, but they would see him be, behave in ways that didn't fit their concept of what it was supposed to be like because he was committed and he was not thinking, oh, this isn't really happening. It was happening. But my relationship to that moment on the stage was, of course, very different than if I had, it had been myself, actually, you understand? But on the other hand, it wasn't. So there's, there's a nuance there that helps us. And it helps us to know how to live because, again, and I've said this so often because I'm a broken record on the point, you know, the masters are committed 
And that's what it takes. Somebody recently was talking about some of uh, the leaders of some one of our centers and saying, you know, they work day and night. They work seven days a week. They work all the time. And I finally said, yes. I mean, like they're committed. They really want to make a success of what they're doing. So they're giving themselves to it. Why is, why is that worthy of so much comment? Of course they're doing that. That's what you do if you want to succeed at anything. You give it 100%. You don't just think, well, God is in charge. You, it's, it's, the, the, the business of just going all the way to the end is something that I'm quite surprised how often people don't. Now, and this is a very small thing, and I don't want anybody who ever comes to my house to help in the house to feel paranoid by this. But it's always puzzled me that when somebody does the dishes, they'll do almost all the dishes. You know, and almost all the dishes will be done, and then there'll be a jar sitting over here. They just, it's right here, you know? Or, I mean, you're smiling because you're, you're like me. You don't stop till it's finished. But if you're going to do it, you do it. And if something happens, you just follow through. I mean, I was here today working with the costumes, and I pulled a box off of the top shelf, and the window has let a little rain in, and so there was this kind of muddy water, and it poured onto something else. And just like I'm, and I was doing 50 things at the same time, but now these costumes are going to be stained. And I just, well, I was all by myself. I just watched myself scoop them up, come right over here to the sink, wash them out, go outside, put them on the hanger. You know, just like there was no stopping because you just don't stop. It has to be done, so you do it. That's, that's how Swami lived. It has to be done. You've come here to help the world, so you help. That, but, you know, he was balanced, he wasn't crazy. He took vacations, he relaxed with his friends. You know, he, he had tea almost every afternoon with people coming over. He would go out to dinner, he would go to movies. We would just laugh, we would have lots of fun. But it was all, everything was, we were gonna make it happen. This was real. This was, this was not, this might be a movie, but it's, as a movie, it's real. <laughs> and we've gotta make it into a good movie. And that includes not protecting your heart, but really giving your heart to the world. It's not easy. That's why there are so few. <laughs> that's my, that's uh, Teresa of Avila and Jesus, when he dumped her into the cold water. And he said, oh, don't worry, Teresa, that's how I treat all my friends, when he appeared to her in vision. And she said, oh, my Lord, that's why you have so few. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so going on. I wondered if the master wasn't also rebuking Clifford gently, not for his implied criticism. I never saw a master try to justify himself because Clifford was correcting master. Master said it's terrible the way the world's caused to suffer. And Clifford said, Well, it's all a play of God. And so Master said, yes, but from the human perspective, it's not. And that's what I'm talking about. So Master wasn't trying to justify himself. Swami makes that point clear. But, for, but he was rebuking Clifford, not for correcting Master, but for pretending to a cosmic aloofness that he clearly didn't feel. Because, see, see, what's going on here is that Clifford could be quite indifferent there and the reason Master knew that he didn't really feel it is because if the circumstances had been something that was closer to Clifford's heart 
or, or touched him more directly, Master knew that that aloofness was not going to be there. I mean, th- that's what he means by that. Clifford was pretending to be aloof only because he'd walled himself off from that particular situation. But when something came that uh, mattered to Clifford in a real way, then he wouldn't be able to hold that position. And that's also what happens with a lot of people, which is why, you know, I, after all these years of meeting lots of people, I just, ta- I t- just take people as they present themselves to me. You know, I don't try to analyze or think about it. I just, but I also, I just wait to see, you know, what, whether it's words, whether it's what Swami called a straw fire, which it burns hot, but the fuel has gone really fast, or whether what they appear to be is what they will be for a very long period of time. I mean, I'm not without intuition or common sense in the matter, but I just let, let life unfold. And, and get neither too elated nor too distressed, if I can help it. Just let, let, let's see. You know, it's, there's a lot of tests. Um, Swami himself talked about, I think it was Dr. Lewis. Swami reported to Master something that someone else had said about Dr. Lewis that wasn't, that wasn't complimentary. Dr. Lewis was Master's first disciple in America and a very dear friend of Master's. And... Master thought that it was Swami himself who was making the criticism, or else he just thought it was a good opportunity to correct Swamiji. And he turned to Swami and he said, when you have successfully passed as many spiritual tests as he has, then you can speak. Which is, that's how things are measured. He may still have had weaknesses or personality quirks, but Dr. Lewis had faced and passed a lot of spiritual tests. And that's sort of all of us have to see, even about ourselves. We can be very enthusiastic, but when we've faced and passed a few tests, we can be a little more confident, really, about who I am and what I'm really going to do. And it's nice. It's very nice. That's why being old is so good. Okay. The Master was extraordinarily sensitive to people's actual motives and would never play along with any pretense on their part. You know, he just, he would always correct you. A mere show of noble or lofty attitudes foreign to a person's actual nature, he dismissed, knowing that it only covered up less noble feelings. I mean, whether he would always correct in public, you don't know. But he, he was, Master was, as I understood it, he was, he just didn't flatter and he didn't play games and he didn't feel, he was always absolutely sincere whether he was active in correcting depended on more subtle factors. But he certainly would not, Master himself would not be hypocritical. You know, I was, uh, I mean, I certainly saw that with Swami. He wouldn't always correct you, but he wouldn't go along with you if he didn't agree with you. And you had to, you had to really listen on, on many levels. You had to listen. And those of us who, who knew him well, you could tell his silence spoke volumes sometimes. And it wasn't even just that he was silenced, it's just that some of his silences said a lot. And if you were interested, you would say, uh-huh, and, <laughs> you know, you would, you would tell him, I hear your silence, what are you trying to say to me? Or you would just shift without it having to go to words. Um, so that's, Master dealt with it by 
correcting Clifford's perspective, but we're dealing with the human level. So it's what, 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 what Clifford was doing is something that we used to call true but irrelevant spiritual advice. I remember when I was involved in some situation and then something began to happen. And a man who had that kind of somewhat pretentious spirituality, he said, well, be careful now, you don't want to get attached. And my response was, of course I'm attached. Do you think I would have even gotten this involved if I wasn't attached? I mean, essentially, what a stupid thing to say to me. That's just not really where, being attached, what you're saying is don't be committed. I'm committed, and therefore it matters. So don't play games with me. I don't like it. But that's sort of what Master was at. Master was more gracious than me. I was just rude. But we, we began to call that true but irrelevant spiritual advice. <laughs> don't be attached. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll think about that. Some incarnation. Okay. Only covered up less noble feelings. He wanted to see us base our understanding on a realist, realistic assessment of our actual realities. And this is another point that I, I'm always trying to balance through, is the difference between positive thinking and wishful thinking. Because a lot of times we're just, we just have wishful thinking. We have wishful thinking from a variety of motives. One is great fear that it's not going to work out the way we want it. Wishful thinking is often an unwillingness to really put out the disciplined energy that's required. So we'll just wish that it will all be a certain way. Positive or positive energy is recognizing that God will help me if I... Not, it's not even God will help me if I help myself. It's that this needs to be done, so let me get engaged to try to make it happen. Um, let me just think there was a thought there. Uh... I've lost it. Okay. To affirm, oh, to affirm good health, for instance, is important for achieving it. Merely to say, however, I am well, without putting forth the energy required to become well, is only wishful thinking. This is not the way to overcome delusion. Very fine line. Because you also have to be positive. Swami told me once that I tended to be negative, which I was quite surprised because I didn't think of myself that way. And then he said, it's because you insist on being so factual. <laughs> Just always being exact about, you know, well, in fact, his fever was 104, you know, and he's had that fever for the last five days. So he's not really well yet, you know. It's just like, no, he's well. His, his energy is moving in the right direction. And, and what it was is that Swami would always see things in terms of the energy flow. And he was not being wishful, he was being factual, he was being accurate because the energy was moving in a certain way. I remember he said uh, once he was away for a week or two and he came back and Seva was the financial manager at that point and when he came back she gave him a long litany of things that were just not going well and she didn't know how she was going to deal with them and the money wasn't there and what was going to happen. And, and then afterwards Swami said, well, things seem to be going really well. <laughs> And she sort of said, what? Have you not been listening? He said, yeah, I heard you, but, but the energy is really good. There's a lot of problems and a lot of things to be overcome, but people's attitudes and energy is really good. And so it wasn't wishful thinking. He knew that those problems, but it was positive because he could tell that there was a positive flow of energy there. 
So it, it just gets, it gets very complicated. And it gets even more complicated. And this is another one of those, you know, things that I'm always working with. Is that sometimes when people really want a certain outcome, they will constantly remind you that God can work a miracle. And then when you try to say that maybe you're dreaming, then they will say back to you that you don't have faith that God can work a miracle. And I, I don't really have a, a clear answer to that. But I know one needs to... You know, the whole point is you have to be very honest about your motives. You just have to be very honest. That's what it comes down to my mind. And to my mind, and this is somewhat just the way I'm constituted, but I've seen it in others. If we, have, if we are very afraid of a certain outcome, then often we insist that God can do a miracle but it's not really that we have faith in God doing a miracle, is that we have great fear of a certain outcome. So we must make it possible for God to prevent that outcome from happening. And, and it, again, it gets a little fuzzy because if we're going to be positive in our thinking, we don't want to dwell in, in the negativity. So all of these are razor's edges for which there is no dogma. I was struck once, I was, it was repeated to me because I wasn't present, um, a woman who who had very serious cancer and, in fact, took a lot of uh, allopathic treatments, but in the end, she lived quite a few years longer than the doctors predicted, like five years longer, but um, in the end, she died. But at a certain point, she decided she was going to heal herself with mm, all the things, all the, the resources we have, which, you know, on, on paper sounds good. And Swami just looked at her and he said, do you have the willpower and the discipline to actually do that? And she said, no. <laughs> Which was, that was the simple answer. Yes, it can be done, but do you actually think you can do it? And it wasn't more like, it wasn't like she collapsed. It was a, it was a very serious question. Do you understand what you're taking on and do you actually think that it is your level of reality for you to actually be able to do this? No, she said. And then she just went another direction because she knew she couldn't. When my friend Paula was sick with cancer, she had, it was the third time that she died. But between the first and second, second and third, she said she was the sweetest person. She was so sweet. She said, you know, I just don't have the luxury of a single negative thought, she said. I just don't have the luxury of having a single negative thought. She says, you know, I have cancer. I just can't be thinking that way. And I, I said, you know, you're the sweetest lady I know, but if you think there's room for improvement, <laughs> you know, go ahead and try. But she didn't uh, live a long life because the cancer cut her life short, so to speak. But she didn't have a single negative thought. I mean, she, she, you know, she knew what she could do. She didn't need to survive in order to succeed in what she was doing. She wasn't afraid at all. Okay, let's take a break. During the break, Chidambar reminded me of um, something that Swamiji had said years ago when he was expelled from SRF in 1962 and it was an extremely serious and difficult test for him. And then gradually he was drawn back into public work. All of this is told in his own autobiography, The New Path. And 
he he began to teach and people commented that what they were especially touched by was his was the feeling of joy they felt in his company and swami said he he found that so remarkable because joy was the last thing that he'd been feeling he'd been in a state of of you know near despair over the loss of everything at the time he thought the loss of everything to which he had dedicated his life once he was no longer within uh, SRF and able to serve in that way but then he said when he really reflected on it he was aware that underneath all the suffering there was still a level of joy that, that hadn't been touched by what was going on I mean that's another one of those trying to understand what the consciousness is really like. But in fact, he said, he literally lay on the bed and prayed to die. So it wasn't as if he was just going about business as usual. But there's just a part of him, and really a part of all of us, because it's just our reality, that that some part of us always knows that something else is happening. I read, a, I, I was watching a documentary about a woman who as a, uh, in her early 20s and late teens was part of the effort in the deep south to break a segregation and this was in the 60s what the what they called the freedom summer and when uh, they were going to the lunch counters the segregated lunch counters and just sitting down black people were doing that she was a white woman she was a white southerner and but she was one of the real pioneers of that movement she was and she, and and there was one one story they were telling in some small southern town where five of them just go sit at the lunch counter and and wait to be served which you know was an outrage and and the police were not protecting them and so there was a very angry mob around them and there they, they were they showed photographs and i remember it all from the time um there was some physical violence she said she really thought that she might die that day because it, it was so violent around them. But there's pictures and they're, they're covered with sugar and they're covered with ketchup and, you know, and they're covered with coffee. I mean, the people were just abusing them. But she said, somewhere in all of that, she says, and the way she put it was, her true self hovered just a little above her head and watched what was going on. I mean, then that would be what your soul would do if you were about to die also, which may be one of the reasons she thought she was about to die. But I think it was also just, you know, the, the deep committed concentration of what she was doing just put her into an, an altered state of reality. But she had to stay where she was. And she also describes just being absolutely terrified. So all of that can happen at the same time. Another more peculiar instance of that happened in my own life when when I first arrived at Ananda Village, many personal things just started happening for me. And I'm talking about 1971. And just a lot of, I, there was a lot of chaos in, in my outer world. So much, and I was very much less emotionally stable. So I cried easily and I cried a lot. And that first Christmas, I was in charge of cooking because I had been moved into the kitchen really early there. 
And Swamiji taught me to make Indian food, and we made this Indian banquet, and it was all it was all quite marvelous. And the first Christmas Eve, especially, was just heavenly. I'd never celebrated Christmas because I'd grown up Jewish. Not that, of course, I, I knew a little, but I'd never celebrated Christmas. So it was my first Ananda Christmas and my first Christmas. And it snowed. There was a heavy snow, and we were up at the seclusion retreat. We were absolutely isolated, about maybe 50 of us at the most, in what we called the common dome, this small room. And um, Swami read us P.G. Woodhouse, and then he and Kalyani sang Christmas carols. It was just astral. It was so beautiful. I mean, even now, I'm just thrilled. And it, it, I, I was, it was heaven on earth. And for years afterwards, I would tell people, just whatever you do, be at Ananda on, on Christmas. Just doesn't matter what you have to do, just be here for Christmas. And then six or seven years later, I, I remembered, actually, it, there was an anomaly to my experience of that first Christmas Eve that I could never quite figure out which was my point of view in the room because I could see everything that happened, but my point of view was farther away from Swami and what was going on than than ever made any sense to me. But I would just sort of let that go. Well, then after six or seven years, I remembered that the reason my point of view was that was because there was this big oil heater that kept the room and I was sitting behind the oil heater crying because that was what I did a lot. I cried a lot, and I didn't want to be imposing it, so I sort of hid. We had gas lights, and so you could get in. So I was in the shadows, hiding behind the oil heater, crying. With these, I used big paper towels, and I was watching. But I didn't remember that I was crying. It was just like I completely forgot that I was crying, and it was years before I remembered. All I remembered with what a blissful experience it was. And that was really, that was, when that all sort of came together, eventually I thought, we just don't know what's going on. I had found my spiritual home. I was having my first experience of Christ. I was with Swamiji. You know, everything was, everything was perfect. The fact that I was emotionally a wreck was just like so incidental that I actually forgot. <laughs> There you are. I was in it far enough to be huddled in the corner crying, not the entire night, but much of the night, because most of my picture of that night is from that perspective. But my, my soul said, oh, forget that. Who cares about that? So I think that's also part of what happens. You just know that you just have to walk through fire. Remember Swami told us about that dream he had? He wrote a little letter called Martyrdom, where he was being burned at the stake. It was just one of those random sort of dreams. Uh, his enemies were, bur- were going to burn him at the stake and they had tied him to the stake and they put the faggots around and they, they were lighting it and it was about to go up in flames. And then he said, as it was, his enemies just were having dinner over here and they were just glancing over every so often to see if he was consumed yet, is how he put it. <laughs> and he was just there waiting to be burned and he just thought to himself, well, this will be unpleasant. You know, this will hurt for a little while and then I'll, I'll be out of my body and won't make any difference. So there's also that. And then actually in the dream what happened is suddenly his friends arrived and untied him and rescued him and he didn't get burned. And he added, the most interesting thing for him 
was that he was completely neutral. If he was burned at the stake, fine. And when his friends rescued him, fine. He said even when his friends came, it was like, okay, if you want to rescue me, you can. It wasn't, oh, thank God you've come. I'm so glad, just in time. It was just like, okay, so now I'll be rescued. But the part that was relevant to this was, oh, well, it'll hurt for a while, but then it'll all be over. Instead of all that involvement in it, it was just, this is going to happen, and then it'll be fine. And so that's where the sort of unbroken joy comes from. Not from enjoying being burned, but from knowing, well, these things happen. Um, just reminds me <clears throat> this business about you being, uh, in your memory, totally unaware of a, what it was apparently a very emotional um, moment for you. Uh, reminds me of Master telling someone that uh, essentially don't worry about all this stuff that's happened here because when ecstasy comes, everything goes. Right. So it's right. sort of the same thing. Yeah, and if you have absolute faith in that, then it's hard to really suffer, mm. even though you suffer. <laughs> True. Okay, well, we've, I think we've taken that one about as far as we can take it. Okay, number 347. Oh, no, 346. We were working on the grounds of SRF's newly acquired lake shrine in Pacific Palisades, getting it ready for its grand opening. There were numerous little flies buzzing around our heads, getting into our eyes, ears, and nostrils. I exclaimed in exasperation to Master, Sir, here we have this beautiful setting. What a pity it is that it must be spoiled by these pests. The Master commented wryly, This is the Lord's way of keeping us always moving toward him. <laughs> Master had a good sense of humor. <laughs> All right, number 347. During the Christmas meditation in 1949, the Master led us in chanting, Do not dry the ocean of my love with the fires of my desires. We sang it many times. Christ is here today, Master said. Sing to him. Later he added, if ever you feel delusion closing in upon you, sing this chant and think of this occasion. Christ and Guru will come down themselves and save you. Just because you sang this with me here today, mark my words, for they are true. Wow, so much happens that we don't know. One moment in the country, company of a saint. It's where Master said uh, he spiritualized those chants. You know, he, he, he gave them dynamic power. And, and also that particular chant, is, it's addressed to God. Do not dry the ocean of, of, yeah, do not dry the ocean of my love with the fires of my desires. It's, it's, it's a, a, a chant that's directed. It's not like the door of my heart open wide, I keep. It's like you, you have to do this certain thing. So it's a, it's a it's a really a prayer demand. So of all the uh, the all the ways in which we can powerfully connect to God and Guru, or to the presence of Christ, he, it, this is a bargain. You're saying this is what I want, and this is what's going to happen, and it, it brings us back to that point again of real faith and and relationship. We have a real relationship. On my Saturday class a couple of days ago, I was 
talking about the fundamental the fundamental starting point of our spiritual life is to have a very intimate personal relationship with God and however we perceive it. Even truth, wisdom, it doesn't have to be an anthropomorphic image of any kind. But th- it has to be very intimate. It has to be where we turn. You know, how to, it's, it has to be the way we... Uh, uh, the way we're oriented. Uh, that Swami tells the story in the path about Master stopping at this little shop on the coast in Southern California to get a package of shortbread, which he, he did, and uh, the driver, whoever was with him, went into the shop to buy it, and they were all out. And so they came back and said to Master, I'm sorry, I couldn't buy any because they don't have any. It's all been sold out today. And Master said to Divine Mother, why? Or how come? Or something like that. And Swamiji said, he wasn't challenging God. He wasn't saying, I, you know, I want shortbread and I don't have it. It's that he'd been guided to come and buy shortbread and he couldn't understand why there wasn't any. It's like Master had no impulses of his own. All of his impulses were God-inspired. There was no ego operative. There was no ego principle to impose its own inclinations on the divine flow. So he came there to, to buy shortbread because that's what Divine Mother told him to do and then there wasn't any. And then just at that moment, he said, he saw a flash of light come down onto the store and the owner came running out with a package of cookies for him and said, I made these for another customer but I can make more and you can have these. It was just like this little aberration in the divine flow and then Master, the woman got to be the instrument of it coming out for him and that's you know that's again it's like there's a level of calmness even in difficult situations from the knowledge that one is simply moving as God asks you to move and I, I know certainly in my own life a lot of times when things have been difficult but I realize there's no there was no operative principle of my own action I don't mean no ego not at all but it, it just was like I've been proceeding along the lines that I understood, doing the best that I could. And if this is what happens, then this must be what has to happen. Which is very different than why, why, why? Or what did I do? How can I? You know, you can still learn, but nonetheless, this must be what has to happen because, look, this is what is happening. And you work, you, you reverse engineer it, is how I joke. This is what's happening, so this must be God's will. That was I used to use that as my mantra when I was really struggling more and newer on the path. I'm a very sincere devotee. This is what's happening to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. But that actually was a great comfort to me because I am sincere. I might not be competent, but I'm sincere. And so if I'm sincere and this is what happens, this must be what happens rather than thinking something is really off. And I mean, all of these answer the question of how can you be struggling and enjoy at the same time? And I mean, I would actually just answer it in a very direct way. Um, Before I was brought to the path of self-realization and I really didn't understand by what string life could be picked up and have it flow, it was terrible. You know, it was just terrible. 
But once I, I knew about self-realization and I knew that there was a, a thread that you could follow, nothing has really been bad since then, <laughs> no matter how awful it's been. Because if this is what happens, this must be what has to happen, and this is the only way to get from here to there. And, you know, I'm going to be burned at the stake and it's going to be unpleasant, but after it's over, I'll be somewhere. And that confidence makes everything, in, you can endure almost anything then because you know where you're going. I remember this woman came to Swamiji, this is, as it happened, it was in India, but it didn't really matter. Although the woman had a characteristic energy that sometimes you see in, in India where they believe that the saint can fix it. And when the saint doesn't fix it, they just kind of keep at him hoping that he'll fix it, if that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's the best of the culture, which is they recognize spiritual power when they see it personified, and they believe that that spiritual power can really affect their lives, and they want the saint to use it, to fix it. So the fact that it was India was relevant. Because in America, I don't think people would have persevered like this woman did. But she was complaining. She was articulating that, you know, she had a whole cascading series of personal catastrophes going on. The details escaped me, but it had to do with husband and children and home and money and that sort of thing. And it was, it was a cascading series of very difficult situations, none of which were even slightly within Swamiji's power to amend. So he said to her, because she was a disciple of this path, he said to her, well, he said, you know, these things happen. At least you know that God is in charge and he's helping you work out your karma. She would have none of it. <laughs> he tried about three or four times to to get her to acknowledge that Master was in charge and she was a disciple and yes, these things were happening, but there was another level from which you could look at it. But she would have none of it. And finally he sort of just shrugged and managed to somehow bring it to a conclusion, very unsatisfactory conclusion for her, because all Swami could say was, God is in charge. But she wanted him to fix it. But you can see how the difference between whether or not there's going to be any underlying joy between those two points of view. One is there will be no underlying joy because it's all, everything is not as it should be, I want it fixed. And the other is, yes, this is terrible and tough and it's going to hurt for a while, but the only way to get where you're going is through this. So I might not like it, but I'm not really going to commit suicide, which is just a way of saying give up and not believe. Does that make sense? These are all very important points. You know, I think I'm going to stop just a few minutes earlier because than I usually do because the next one is very long and I think I would rather just save it for the next round. So we have gone from... Let's see, where was I? We've gone from 343 through 347. Thank you. <laughs> 